In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Here we are at the last Sunday of the church year, the Sunday next before Advent. And listen to how it ends. The gospel chosen for today, the one that has been read for hundreds and hundreds of years by people all over the world, says simply, Behold the Lamb of God. Of all the things that Jesus said, and of all the miracles he did, this gospel is the one chosen to close out the Trinity season and the church year. This is the one chosen to lead us into Advent. Behold the Lamb of God. Why? What is its meaning? Well, to call the Lord Jesus the Lamb of God is to emphasize how he made himself small. It's to emphasize his great love for us. He loved us so much that he made himself small and vulnerable like a lamb. To call him the Lamb of God is to emphasize his sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his precious blood for us. A lamb in the, in the culture of the Middle East in New Testament times was a sacrificial animal. So to say, behold the Lamb of God is like saying, see, look upon the one who has been sent from, the one who is owned by or provided by God for sacrifice. Last year, we visited the Connors Farm off the Homestead Road. We wanted to see some lambs, some sheep. The year before, just after Easter, we borrowed two of the Connors lambs. They came with diapers, do you remember? They were very friendly when they were brought into the church hall, and we did not have to be afraid of them. And that's the thing. Lambs do not have any defenses. Sure, they're smart, and they have good memories, but they're vulnerable to all kinds of predators. And so the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, he emptied himself and opened himself to the scorn and the jealousy and the mocking and all the injustices and the torture of human beings. He did not fight back when he was falsely accused and arrested. He did not avoid the humiliation of his coming to save us. Nor did he avoid or evade the suffering of the cross. Instead, he came down from heaven for the, for the purpose of shedding his blood and offering himself as the Lamb of God, the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins 
of the world. Someone a few years ago gave me a sand dollar, a sand dollar. As you know, it's a flat-looking sea creature. It lives on the floor of shallow, sandy waters. And it gets washed up on the beach. And once out of the water and bleached by the sun, a dried-up sand dollar looks like a large silver coin. Hence its name, sand dollar. Interestingly, in spite of its unassuming appearance, this creature tells the story of this morning's gospel and the Lamb of God. You see, in the center, on the top of the sand dollar shell, you can clearly see a star. A star which Christian tradition has always understood to represent the star of Bethlehem that led the wise men to the manger where Christ was born. Around it is the outline of the Easter lily, a sign of our Lord's resurrection. At the edges of the star, on top of that sand dollar, are four holes. And in the center, there's another hole. These five holes remind us of the four sacred wounds of Jesus' hands and feet when he was nailed to the cross. And the center hole, the fifth one, represents the wound that was in his side after the Roman soldier pierced him with the spear. If you turn the sand dollar over, you'll find an outline of a poinsettia. No kidding. The Christmas flower, the poinsettia, is clearly and distinguished on the other side of the sand dollar. And finally, this is hard to believe, but it's true. If you break open the sand dollar, no matter how big the sand dollar is, you'll find five little white doves. These actually are sections of the sand dollar's jaws. And these little doves, of course, remind us of the peace which we have in Christ Jesus. The peace which passes all understanding. All of what can be seen in and on the sand dollar wonderfully testifies to John the Baptist's word this morning about the Lord Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Here is the sacrificial lamb provided by God himself, born in the manger, nailed to the cross. Humbly and quietly he came into this world at Bethlehem, and humbly and quietly, like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus went to Calvary in order to take away the sins of the world. As we reflect upon Jesus as the Lamb of God, let's add the next part of today's Gospel. 
two of John the Baptist's disciples heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God, and they started to follow Jesus. Knowing that they were behind him, Jesus turned and asked them, What seek ye? Or what are you seeking? Interesting, isn't it? He did not ask who. Who are you looking for? He asked them, what? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? William Barclay, a minister of the Church of Scotland and prolific Bible scholar, highlighted this question. He asked, were these men legalists looking only for conversations about little details of the law like the scribes and Pharisees? Were they nationalists looking for a military commander who would smash the occupying power of the Roman Empire? Were they humble men of prayer looking for God and trying to discern God's will? Or were they just puzzled looking for light on the road of life. What seek ye? Jesus asked them. Barclay goes on to suggest that it would be well if every one of us now and again asked ourselves that question, what am I looking for? What is my aim and goal? What am I trying to get out of life? One thing that people want today, and I would imagine if this, if, if the church, somebody in the church asked them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for spiritually? What are you looking for out of faith? I imagine one thing that people would say is truth. The real McCoy. The genuine article. I'm tired of all the spinning of facts and massaging of stories. I want the real McCoy, not a buttered up representation, not a fake. I want something that is authentic. What are you seeking, we might ask? Truth. Authenticity, consistency with word and action. Isn't that always from time immemorial a complaint that is leveled against the church? Hypocrisy. People want consistency with word and action, and they want the truth. As Barclay points out, the, the disciples said to Jesus, when he said, What seek ye? They answered, Master, Where dwellest thou? And in response, he said, Come and see. Come and see. He could have answered that fairly simply with where he was dwelling, but instead he said, Come and see. Apparently, this was the kind of response often used in that culture by a Jewish rabbi. Do you want to know the answer to this question? 
Come and see, and we'll think about it together. The Lamb of God said, Come and see. So he was inviting them not only to come and talk, but to come and discover the things that he alone, as the Lamb of God, could show them. Things that involved servant ministry and his purpose as the Lamb of God. So on this last Sunday of the church year, the message is really a restating of what we already covered in the church year. In Lent and Easter, Christ, the Son of God, came humbly and lowly as the Lamb of God. He emptied himself of all glory and became one of us in order to confront and defeat our enemy of sin and death and hell. Today's Gospel tells us this now because next week we'll begin to read and think about Christ's promised return when he will not come quietly and humbly but rather with power and great glory when he will not come as a lamb when he will come as our king and judge the king of kings and lord of lords the first time he came in the middle of the night by the blessed virgin mary in a barn to be our savior the second time every eye will see him and he will come with power like a lion to be our king what does this mean for us today what does it mean to follow the lamb of god what does it mean that we have this gospel of come and see the Lamb of God. What is the so what for us? Quite clearly, this gospel is reminding us that in order to be a follower of Christ, the Lamb of God, we must be prepared ourselves to take up the cross. It sounds romantic sometimes until we get to the humiliation and the actual uncertainty and face to face with the fear and until we feel the real suffering. A lamb, as we've talked about with the children, is practically defenseless. But please do not understand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting as we prepare to meet suffering that we compromise what we believe, that we not follow. I'm not suggesting that we disregard what God's Word tells us. I'm simply pointing out that the very Son of God willingly laid down His life and we are followers of Him. He, the incarnate Son, did that for us, and He calls us to deny ourselves, to imitate Him. 
to take up the cross. So for us, there are some key points. The imitation of Christ will require humility. He is the servant king when he is the Lamb of God. It will require, as we see in the life of our Savior, rendering to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God things that are God's, like last Sunday's Gospel. It will require a wrestling with these, because there is a razor-sharp edge between rendering to Caesar and rendering to God. It will require much prayer and fasting as we follow the Lamb, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we look, as we look with faith for his return, we will ask ourselves what is worth going to the wall over and seek his help in discerning the answer. What battles will be glorifying to our Heavenly Father and which ones will not? On Thursday mornings, we've been reading The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. He speaks a lot about obedience. He was writing for, for the monastics. But what he says applies to every Christian. Everyone, it is true, he wrote, wishes to do as he pleases and is attracted to those who agree with him. But if God be among us, we must at times give up our opinions for the blessings of peace. Everyone, it is true, wishes to do as he pleases and is attracted to those who agree with him. I would be in that number. But if God be among us, we must at times give up our opinions for the blessings of peace. The thing is, although we have the promise of Christ's return, when he will come with power and glory as our king, we're waiting still, and the whole creation is groaning in travail, and we are waiting for the revelation for our revelation as the children of God. There is this groaning. There are these uncertainties until he comes again. Until he returns on the clouds of heaven and sets everything to rights according to God's perfect plan. In the meantime, we are called to be imitators of him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And we are called in all of that groaning and uncertainty in this life of prayer, we are called to hope, to believe, to trust that the one who loves us is always faithful to his word. 
we have a special relationship, one that has been a gift to us by God himself in baptism. When he adopted us as his own children, but that does not mean that we will prosper in anything and everything we want to accomplish. It does not mean that we will be able to go scot-free without suffering. Nor does it mean that I can ignore the demands that are placed on me by Caesar. Still, I'm called to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And yet, my citizenship is in heaven, as is yours, dear friends. The pandemic has given the body of Christ, the church, a powerful, a powerful opportunity to witness to the new life the new life of the Spirit that was won for us by Christ's suffering and humiliation. By the power of the Spirit, we can make the required sacrifices. We can live in the groaning. We can live in the lamentations, knowing that there will be joy in the morning when our King and Savior returns. He has promised to do so, and he will. And we will see him. And he is now and will make everything new. Now unto God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ascribe all might, majesty, dominion, power, honor, and glory, as is most justly due, henceforth and forevermore.